Vision, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we drip filter weird and wonderful science, direct to your wetware. I'm Charles Willock. In this edition of Diffusion, in praise of carbon, and we speed up the net by going sideways. But first up, here's the news with Patrick Ruby. If you think the weather is a hot topic here on Earth, you should try living on a star. Stars, just like some planets and moons, can experience weather. A team of astrophysicists of Uppsala University, Sweden, have made the discovery while studying Alpha Andromedae, a star 95 light-years away from Earth in the constellation Andromeda. The temperatures on the star can reach thousands of degrees Celsius. Gaseous mercury clouds roll across the Andromedan sky, condensing and dissipating in localised spots. These small spots form part of a large-scale circulation pattern, similar to the way weather works on Earth. The phenomenon of condensation and dissipation occurs frequently on stars, but was thought to be caused by strong magnetic fields, something that Alpha Andromedae lacks. Mercury is the only element in the star's atmosphere that can form clouds. Further research needs to be conducted to find out why. Leaving space weather behind us, it seems that nature could be providing us a way to find more water. Spiders' webs have provided an idea on how to collect fresh water. Architects from Haifa's Geotech Tourist Studio and Malka Architects have designed Wattair, a machine that can work on the same principles as arachnid designs. It is a four-sided inverted pyramid containing three-metre-long panels. At night, these panels collect beaded dewdrops on both their top and bottom surfaces. Gravity draws the drops downwards into tanks, wells or bottles at the bottom of the structure. The pyramid can be made from elastic canvas, recycled polycarbonate, metal or glass. It can collect a minimum of 48 litres of fresh water daily. On the theme of conservation, a new way has been devised to conserve fuel using a familiar household item. Oil and gas can be recycled from plastic and rubber using a microwave. Global Resource Corporation has a special machine called Hawk 10 that uses 1,200 different frequencies with the microwave range. Zapping plastic or rubber with the appropriate wavelength breaks down some of the hydrocarbons into diesel oil and combustible gas. What is left over is non-hydrocarbon material and water which evaporates in the microwave. Jerry Medic, Director of Business and Development at GRC, says the new technology has many applications, including simplifying recycling and reducing landfill. One of the major areas where the technology could be useful is in recycling autofluff, the mixture of plastics, rubber, wood and fabrics left over once a car has been shredded. The oil and gas produced in this recycling process would be enough to power the Hawk 10 microwave and several other machines while clearing up space in landfills. In evolutionary news, new light has been shed upon the question that has perplexed many scientists. What evolved first in modern primates, finding food or finding a mate? Researchers at Ohio University suggest that trichromatic colour vision, which our vision is based on, drove the evolution of skin colour. Trichromatic vision, the ability to see colours as mixtures of green, red and blue, initially evolved in primates to help them forage for food. As red colours often meant good, 
skin might have evolved to the red-orange colour it is today to help identify and select good potential mates. Modern primates with trichromatic vision are also more social than primates without and use colour to communicate with each other and to choose potential mates. From skin colour to skin creation. Artificial skin might be the answer for burns and skin damage. The skin, called ICX, SKN, mimics the process of natural healing. It is made of a matrix of fibrin, a protein needed for healing wounds and fibroblasts, cells that produce the collagen in skin. Paul Kemp and colleagues at the British biotech company Intercytex have been developing the artificial skin. A study has shown it takes 28 days to fully heal small skin cuts with little scarring. The research team claims it works better than other available substitutes. If successful, this technique could replace current skin grafts taken from other parts of a patient's body, which are relatively painful and create new wounds anyway. And finally, giant penguins in tropical climates. Fossil remains of two previously unknown species of penguin have been found in Peru. The first species, Ichodiptes salasi, lived 36 million years ago and was 1.5 metres tall. The second species, Peridiptes devresi, lived 42 million years ago and was 75 to 90 centimetres tall. The discoveries indicate penguins migrated to tropical climates tens of millions of years before previously thought. They also contradict the belief that penguins in tropical climates were smaller because they didn't need to retain as much heat. Penguins today can be found in both tropical and cold climates. The discovery and research of these penguins has involved paleontologists of the North Carolina State University and scientists from Peru and Argentina. If you thought that chemistry was boring, you obviously haven't been taught properly. Lachlan Watmore would now like to give you a full, well, a half-length portrait of the periodic's table most incredible movie. There's an element on the periodic table that blows my mind. The element is carbon, and I've been in awe of this element ever since I fell in love with biology. Carbon, along with water, is the absolute building block of all living things. Every fat, every protein, every sugar, every nucleotide, every vitamin, every major biological compound is carbon-based. But carbon is much more than just the element of life, as we shall see. The word carbon comes from the Latin carbo, which means coal. Carbon has an atomic number of six, which means there are six protons in its nucleus and thus six electrons orbiting said nucleus. Two of those electrons are in the inner electron shell and are pretty much irrelevant in carbon chemistry. However, the other four are in the outer or valence electron shell and are extremely significant. Simply put, a carbon's four valence electrons enable it to bond with up to four other atoms. This means that carbon can, and does, form long chains of itself, or large rings of itself, or various other geometrical structures of itself, plus or minus other elements, to create large molecules of perhaps limitless variety in shape and size. Imagine if skydivers had four arms and could hold on to four other skydivers while they make those pretty patterns that they do. Think of the many three-dimensional complex shapes that four-armed skydivers could make compared with the limited flat geometry of two-armed skydivers. With four arms, the possible combinations are, of course, many more than with two. 
With this in mind, it's hardly surprising that while there are approximately 150,000 inorganic or non-carbon compounds currently described, there are nearly 10 million organic or carbon compounds described, with several thousand being discovered every year. Let's have a look at pure carbon, which is pretty amazing stuff even before it's formed itself into biomolecules. Pure carbon comes in a number of forms, known as allotropes. The best-known allotropes of carbon are graphite, which you can find in your average pencil, and diamond, which you can find in jewellery, on the edges of industrial tools, and on the stylus of a record turntable. Other allotropes of carbon include the fullerenes, also known as buckyballs or bucky tubes, named after their discoverer, Buckminster Fuller. Pure carbon comes in different allotropes because it can bond with itself in different geometries. Graphite consists of two-dimensional sheets of carbon atoms in a hexagonal layered structure, each sheet only bonded to another by weak forces. Those sheets easily slip past each other and therefore graphite is extremely soft and indeed makes an excellent lubricant. By contrast, diamond is the hardest substance known, is the ultimate abrasive and therefore makes a lousy lubricant. This is because the carbon in diamond has bonded with itself into three dimensions, each carbon atom holding onto four others in a cubic shape. This gives diamond enormous hardness thanks to strong bonds being formed in three dimensions, not just two. The difference between graphite and diamond is even more profound when you consider their other physical properties. Other glaring contrasts include diamond is a good electrical insulator versus graphite being a good conductor and indeed is frequently used as an electrode. Diamond is a good thermal conductor while graphite is a good thermal insulator and diamond is usually transparent while graphite is opaque. Carbon's importance to organic life cannot be overstressed. Indeed, carbon chemistry was originally called organic chemistry because all the compounds being studied were derived from organic material. Thanks again to its four electron arms, carbon is the backbone of large biomolecules like fats, proteins and carbohydrates. Some of these molecules, like the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, are so large that you can take a photograph of them. And one of the results of carbon being so important to organic life is the occurrence of large deposits of petroleum in the Earth's crust. If a large mass of organic material is buried and crushed by overlying strata, over time it slowly changes into various petroleum compounds forming crude oil. And can you imagine a world without oil? No automobiles, no paint and polish, no ink and nylon, no detergents. And perspex, you wouldn't get any perspex. No polythene. Dry cleaning fluid. Uh-huh. And waterproof coats. Then they dry cleaning fluid out of oil? Oh, yeah, I did not know that. Uh, I didn't know that. So next time you use a lead pencil, paint a house, use furniture, polish, buy a diamond ring, wear nylon, open a polythene bag, use waterproofing or perspex or dry cleaning fluid, marvel and wonder at the biosphere, or just gun the beast down the road with a tank full of high octane. Remember, Carbon, it's there for you. That was Tetrabrachial Sesquipedalian Lachlan Watmore, ably assisted by John Williams, Peter Rygett, Peter Capaldi and Mark Knopfler, and that amazing element called carbon.
with Carbon is a Girl's Best Friend. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio broadcast on 2SER in Sydney, diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast around the world on your favourite audio percolator. Hey, want to share some internet? If you like your internet cheap, fast and out of control then wireless meshing networks might be for you. Ian Wolfe plugs in and definitely turns on. Wireless anarchy. You can speed up the internet by going sideways instead of waiting in line. Imagine the internet started like a water plumbing system in the 1970s, when there were big mainframes acting like pumps, driving data like water through big pipes in the centre, connecting with small pumps to small pipes to a dumb computer screen at home which just drains off some data. The more home users you add, the less water or data speed is available for everyone, because the pipes and pumps in the centre can only pump so much before they start drying up. If everyone is trying to get the same file from one place, then it slows down the flow of watery data right down, and nobody gets anything. US Senator Ted Stevens 
a legislator in charge of internet regulation. Ten movies streaming across that, that inter- internet. And what happens to y- your own personal internet? I, I just the other day got inter- internet was sent by my staff at 10 o'clock in the morning on Friday. I got it yesterday. Why? Because it got tangled up with all of these things that are going on the internet commercially. And again, the internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a series of tubes. This is how the telephone system was set up and how the internet was set up. It relies on the assumptions that the data pumping machines are expensive and centrally owned by a big corporation and that pipes are scarce and owned by the same big company that rents them to you. It assumes that home users are using dumb screens on slow computers that just drain data flow. The more downloaders, the slower it all gets. This is the business model that charges you a monthly connection fee and then a fee for the speed of data flow you use. There are limits on downloading and the more you use them, the slower they get. Everything and everybody has to queue up and wait their turn. The more people, the longer the wait. This system is obsolete in the 21st century. Enter peer-to-peer networking, such as BitTorrent. The netheads among you will know that BitTorrent turns the system upside down. The more people who download a tasty file, such as this podcast, the faster the downloads get for everybody. The more, the merrier. This is because every home computer is not just a dumb data flow drain, but actually a very fast computer that can do its own data flow pumping. When you get all the downloading computers to compute the best download data flow, it goes as fast as the pipes will let it go. Because the people no longer have to rent time on a computer in the centre, they can compute the data flow for themselves. The data flow calculations have been decentralised, shared by all the people downloading the files. So, to completely speed up the network, the last bottleneck is the pipes rented from the big company. Enter wireless mesh networking. Meshing means that not only is the computing of the data flow shared amongst all the people downloading at home, with every computer a data pump, but also every computer comes with its own pipes. Because they're wireless, you don't need to buy land and dig trenches. These pipes can connect to every other computer within a few kilometres. It's like every home and office computer is a data pump at the hub of a wheel and has hundreds of its own spokes of data pipe. So when you join this data pump and its hundred pipes to the mesh network, instead of slowing things down, it speeds the network up. Every new user brings a new pump and a whole bunch of extra pipes. Imagine if instead of your house computer just being connected with one wire to your service provider, you also had wires connecting you sideways with every neighbour. Not only next door but throughout the next few blocks for two kilometres. The data flow will be very, very fast. Every new user brings a bigger pump because every newer computer is faster, and they bring their hundred new pipes, which the mesh automatically hooks up to everyone it can. Every new user speeds up the data flow in the network. In network jargon, it means that instead of every device sending information to nodes, every device will act as a node itself, sending information to and receiving information from every other device. This is also called peer-to-peer, many-to-many, multi-hop, and massively parallel networking. There are many paths through meshed nodes to each destination, so there's no waiting in a queue like there is for Ethernet. There is no central computer organising everything. All the organising is done by every device talking to all the rest. The network is self-organising and highly resistant to faults or disasters. The military already connect their soldiers this way in the field. Nicholas Negroponte of MIT has a plan for helping the developing third world. He's designing and building a laptop computer with a free, 
open-source Linux operating system, free software applications, a camera, and a microphone, and wireless mesh networking that will set itself up without any need for the user to do anything. They're working to cap the cost at just $100 per laptop and to give one for free as part of foreign aid to every child in a poor country. Every child will be connected to every other child within a two-kilometre radius, and every child will extend the network an extra two kilometres to the next child at the two-kilometre boundary. In this way, very large areas can be connected that are a long way from official internet connections. The laptops can act as video or old-style phones with the free software. If even one child in the mesh is connected to an internet hotspot, then every child is connected. It's called the One Laptop Per Child OLPC Project. MIT have had trouble with their American chip makers to get the price down under $200. The software is largely being developed for free by universities and developers around the world to be easy and intuitive for children to use. An Indian company has recently suggested that not only can they get under the $200 barrier that the American chip makers have declared, but they can make the whole thing for just around 49 bucks in India. It makes sense to have a machine for the developing world built in the developing world. It means that not only do they get the enormous benefits of having the computers and the mesh network, but they also get the $100 per laptop funding to stimulate their economy. Naturally, their costs will be less than manufacturing in the USA. Some people have pointed out that children everywhere are vulnerable to adults stealing their laptops. However, if the price is down to $49, then the solution is simple. Instead of giving the meshing laptops just to children, give them to everybody. And by everybody, I don't just mean in the developing world. For a price of $49, governments in the first world can afford to give them to everybody. Imagine how many votes you could win with that before an election. The meshing will speed everybody up and connect everybody to a large community. It will take the load off the big companies who can't keep up with demands because of their reliance on the 1970s centralised queuing system. For people who are more than two kilometres from others, radio towers are cheaper than buying land and digging trenches for optic fibres. When you mesh together all these computers, it means you not only share the data flow loading, but you also share the computing resources. It's guesstimated that 99% of computers on the internet are not being used at any one time because their users are asleep. We can speed up our personal computers by harvesting the unused computation power of the devices on the net. If we start using distributed computing that uses spare CPU cycles to do computing while the owners are asleep, you can suddenly give supercomputer access to anyone who needs it. Mobile phones using the old Wi-Fi standard to make voice over IP calls on the internet are already available in Australia, and the newer phones will seamlessly hand off calls between mobile phone networks and Wi-Fi hotspots without dropping the call. The Meraki company are among the first to provide a mesh product to the market. They sell Meraki minis for $50 for the indoor market and $100 for weatherproof outdoor versions that cover about 250 metres using 802.11g, which is Wi-Fi technology up to about 54 megabytes a second. There are now meshed communities around the world. In Australia, there are some in Bathurst, Adelaide, Queensland and in Darwin. There are many university and community mesh networks in the USA and elsewhere around the world. At the moment, the new 802.11n wireless standard has been approved for 600 megabytes a second speeds, over about 70 metres. WiMAX, or 802.16, is being rolled out for Australia this year and can cover a sphere of radius of 50 kilometres. If you're at home, WiMAX could deliver 70 megabytes a second. If you're travelling, then you're down to 10 megabytes a second. Sharing is caring. 
Sharing data flow and CPU cycles with a network community of many people gives back to you more than you can give. Wireless mesh networking will give us an internet that is fast, cheap and out of control of big industry. Wireless Anarchy is about creating your own long-range infrastructure without having to pay anyone or jump through government hoops. Cheaply and easily, using off-the-shelf equipment and a little ingenuity, you too can create your own net. That was Ian Wolfe finding that if we all bring a pump and a pipe to the party, then the data will flow like beer. Check out www.wirelessanarchy.com to join the party. It's not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's a series of tubes. That's all from us for this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or check out our website at www.diffusionradio.com where you can download a whole heap of our previous programs. Contributing to this program were Patrick Rubin, Lachlan Watmore, and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney and syndicated nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Charles Willock. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science percolations next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Really indicate that anyone that wants to use this system for massive, commercial purposes... Those tubes can be filled. Tangled up tubes. The internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. Stream series of tubes. Why did we do that? Why? Enormous tubes. Massive tubes. It really is the Internet Consumer Bill of Rights. Because he got tangled up with all of these things that are going on the Internet commercially. The world has turned against this. Your own personal Internet. That is you and me. You and me. Tubes. The Internet.